Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I'm always incredibly thankful to be here with you. Sunday morning, I've said it many times, Sunday morning is, is always the highlight of my week. It's the culmination of, of a week of study and preparation, and, and it, and, but it is much, really much more than that. It's a time that I get to spend with you in fellowship. And I truly enjoyed my time away. I was gone last week, as some of you, or not most of you know. I was at the Ligonier Conference, and Angie and I were also able to spend a day or so in Tampa together. And we just had a wonderful time, and between all of the activity that we did, Angie and I were able to spend some quality time together, which was excellent. I can't, I can't think of a better way of spending time than with our, with our spouse or our children. And, and I think that, that really, if you think about it, the depth of our time with family is directly impacted by the depth of our time with and commitment to the body of Christ. So I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. I see that, that for me and you know, the church... Now, the church and my, and my family are, are the only ways that I can find sanctity in this world. Sanity, that is, in this world, uh, sanctity too. But the idea is, is that I want to spend time with both, and I need both. We all need both in our lives in order to grow in Christ. We live, really, we live in a world that is difficult to bear. I prayed about it earlier. We need, we need one another as we face trials on, on every side, the fiery arrows of the enemy. As we read the news, our hearts can become burdened with so many stories of despair, can it not? I mean, we have, there's so much going on. There's a, there's a steady drumbeat of disease, cancer, heart disease, uh, cardiopulmonary disease, everything under the sun that we deal with. There's this brokenness of families that we hear, divorce and abandonment and children being left to defend for themselves and, and the murder of children in the womb and, and shootings. As I mentioned earlier, there's gang-related shootings. There's family-involved shootings, there's school shootings, there's all sorts of these things going on. As, as, we, as we watch the news, everyone seems to have an answer for these things. For disease, we're told to take this or that medication and, and eat this or that food. For brokenness in families, we're told that our children should be allowed to be themselves. They should be able to express themselves by even their chosen gender. They, whatever gender they want to be, they can be, and we need to let them be that way. The schools and the government believe that they know how best how to raise our children, and they are not going to tell you, or they're going to tell you that you don't know what you're doing. They believe that we need to let the professionals handle it. But that's exactly what's gotten us into this problem. That's exactly what's gotten us into this problem. You see, there are very, two very different worldviews at odds here. The clash of those worldviews, I would argue, is broadening. Uh, be thankful if it hasn't affected directly affected your home, school, or church. Be assured that it will. It will. We can't hide from it. But Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation. As Christians we know this to be true, but sometimes our trouble seems to be more than we can bear. On this past Monday, March the 27th, the children and teachers at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, started their day just like any other Monday. They had no way of knowing, that what, knowing what they faced as the day progressed. I'm sure they had talked about the possibility. I'm sure they'd even prepared for the possibility. But no one really ever believes it will happen to them, right? At 9.54 that morning, a former student, 28-year-old female student named Audrey, parked her car, entered the school by, 
by shooting through a locked glass door, and just 14 minutes later, she had shot and killed six dear souls, including three young students and three teachers and admin. Then she was killed by law enforcement before she could leave the property. According to law enforcement, she planned to kill more, including members of her family at various locations around Nashville. It's, it takes time for us to know all the facts, so we need to be slow to make judgments. But at this point, we do know that this young lady who had changed her name to Aiden was incredibly troubled and confused. She had begun to identify as a boy and was grieving the recent loss of a close friend from high school. According to a former colleague, she deeply resented anyone who was a, an opponent of her uh, becoming a transgender. According to news reports, she still lived with her parents who forbid her from acting out her desire as, to live as a man in their home. And we also know that as the news began to circulate, at first they said it was a young man who... Uh, I mean, a young, a young man who had done this, but as news began to, a young girl actually, they said, they identified her as a young girl, but they realized that she had been identifying as trans, so when that news began to break, many of the, in the media, joined the LGBTQ activists in trying to bend the story from being a female shooter to being a transgender male shooter. Then they began to set the, the context as a, a backlash against conservative Christianity and a threat to, uh, as a threat to the LGBTQ community. Let's listen to some of the initial comments on social media. Here's one. I don't condone Audrey Hale's actions, though I understand their outrage against an intolerant state that brainwashes children through religious indoctrination. The reality is this human still identified as that child attending that school and carried, out that, carried that pain into adulthood. So basically what happened to her in that school when she was young is the reason why she did what she did later on. And it was the pain that they caused in her life. Another tweeted, very surprising that there would be a mass shooting at a Christian school given that lack of prayer is often blamed for these horrible events. Is it possible they weren't praying enough, they weren't praying enough or correctly despite being a Christian school? Of course, there's the usual chorus of people calling for gun control. One man tweeted, Dead, maimed children equals thoughts and prayers. Some, including the Los Angeles Times, tried to tie it to some recent legislation that banned gender-affirming care for transgender youth and barred drag queens and other male or female impersonators from performing anywhere near children. They called it, this is the LA Times, a growing culture war over LGBTQ rights. End quote. One man tweeted, The thing is, if we had gave an assault rifle to every drag queen, the GOP would make story hour a national holiday. End quote. Newsweek declared, drag shows and gender-affirming care for minors were banned in Tennessee this month while assault weapons remain legal, end quotes. Beloved, we are in a war for this culture. We're in a war for this culture. We live in a culture that is more, becoming, that is more and more becoming hate-filled, and much of that hate has been and will be directed toward us as Christians because we stand for the truth. We stand for the truth. According to a recent 
Pew research, the balance of opinion about evangelical Christianity has shifted. Now listen to this. Among those who do not identify as Christians, so those who are, say that they're not Christians, 32% have an unfavorable opinion of evangelicals. That's you and I. 18% favorable. Among those who are not who don't, don't identify as Christian. So we are living in a culture that is rejecting the truth and rejecting those who are identified with the truth. And that's not to say we're perfect, right? I mean, we do, as Christians, we do some dumb things. For sure. But by and large, the culture is beginning to shift against us. But really, this shouldn't surprise us. Romans 1.18, in Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul declares, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If you keep reading Paul's words in Romans 1, you will find a laundry list of sins that describe our modern culture. So the things that we're seeing around us shouldn't surprise us. Yet we should be grieved by them. It should drive us to want others to know the truth of the gospel. Just a, a couple of verses prior to those words about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then he says this, For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So, the world that we live in, they don't want to hear the truth. And they certainly don't want to hear about the righteousness of God. Because it goes against what they want. Therefore, as Christians, what we have to understand is this clash of worldviews, that we're in the midst of it. It is an all-out war. And as uh, Christians then, what are we called to do? To be strong in the Lord, in the, in the might of His strength. We're commanded to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We need to be aware as Christians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It would be very easy for us to look at a, a young lady like Audrey Hale and, and blame her. And do exactly what they're doing. The, the, the other side is blaming us. It would be easy for us to blame someone like that. But what we have to understand is, is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the, 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 the other people out there. Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the only thing that I, the only answer there is is the gospel. As Christians, all the things that we see should grieve us. The world around us needs the gospel more than ever. I always appreciate Al Mohler's take on these cultural concerns. Here's what he had to say about the Nashville shooting, and I, I just want you to hear this. But Christians, and this is Val Muller, but Christians know that the real urgency is six grieving families in Nashville. Christian moms and dads with brothers and sisters are living a pain no one else would dare to understand. 
In Nashville, there is a wounded community and a congregation that has experienced unspeakable loss. I'll stop right there to say one of the ones that was killed was actually the pastor's daughter. A Presbyterian pastor with his wife and their children are experiencing the death of their little daughter and beloved sister. Jesus did tell his disciples that those who follow him would face trouble in this world. Big trouble. Heartbreaking trouble. Mind-bending trouble. But we must remember that Jesus went on to say, but take hearts. This is John 16, I quoted earlier. But take hearts. I have overcome the world. Sometimes remembering that promise is all that will get us through. End quotes. As you probably know today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Christians traditionally celebrate Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem as He faced execution on a Roman cross. In just a few short days from that time, He would be rejected and would take upon Himself the wrath of God for our sins. In a week, just a few days later, He would defeat sin and death by, by rising from the grave on that resurrection morning. Jesus' encouragement to take courage, He had... Jesus encouraged us to take courage because He had overcome the, the world. That's John 16.33. It says, These things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace. So that you may have peace. You may have peace because of what He has done. Because what He has accomplished. What's amazing is He spoke those words those very words he spoke to his disciples in the upper room just before he departed to be arrested. That they were about to go through the most harrowing situation that they would ever go through. And he spoke those words that they would have peace because of what he has done or what he was about to do. As you think through those amazing, incredible events of that week, I want you to remember the power of the gospel. I want you to recognize that our role in preaching the gospel to, the, to a lost world that desperately needs to hear it and believe it. As you listen, I want you to understand the truth of Paul's words. Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we can't shrink back. We need to take hearts that Christ has overcome this world. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. And we praise You. Lord, You have sent Your Son to die on a cross, to take upon Himself the wrath of the Father. Your, your wrath, Lord. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see and understand the fullness of the Gospel as we consider what the Lord Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, as we listen this morning, I pray that we would prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's table. That we would think upon the Lord's death and proclaim it until He comes. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be take a, we're continuing to take a break from our normal study in Matthew, we're going to skip ahead a few chapters to Matthew chapter 21. If you want to turn to Matthew 21, 
to be in verses 1 through 11 as we consider what many of us know as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Read along with me, starting in verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1. And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And this took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their garments on them, and he sat on the garments. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road, and the others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them, on, spreading them in the road. And the crowds were going ahead of him. Crowds going ahead of them, those who followed, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, and all the city stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. Now as we begin to look at this text, let me give you the, my proposition and outline this morning. In Matthew 21, 1-11, Matthew recounts the culmination of Jesus' pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to the cross. He recounts four critical features of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on His way to the cross. So what we're going to see is Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was first the completion of a long pilgrimage. Look down at your text in verse 1. It says, When they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Now, let me give you a little geography lesson to better understand what's happening here. Jesus and His disciples were approaching Jerusalem from the east. The Mount of Olives... It was on the east, or sits on the east side of Jerusalem, just east of the Temple Mount. It is a single peak of a a two-mile-long ridge, and it forms a barrier between the city and the Judean wilderness to the east. It stands about 300 feet above the city. The Kidron Valley sits between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. So if you're looking out from the Mount of Olives toward the Temple, you have the Kidron Valley. From this perspective, if you were sitting here, it seems much higher than it actually is. That, is. that is the Mount of Olives. From the top, there is this impressive panoramic view. You can see the Dead Sea to the east, about 15 miles to, to the back of you, if you're facing Jerusalem. And, and you can see the temple and the rest of Jerusalem clearly from the western slope of the mount. Earlier, Jesus had traveled through Jericho, where he had healed two blind men. Now Jericho would be on the ascent, or at the bottom of the ascent, up toward the backside of the Mount of Olives. And so he was there, and he, uh, and he healed two blind men, and he also led Zacchaeus, the tax collector, to repentance and salvation. That's according to Luke 19. Now as we consider these events, we should recognize that, 
that as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, he he also approached the very end of his three years of ministry. Now, we should also recognize and understand that his journey to Jerusalem began not, not right there, it actually began in a place called Caesarea Philippi several months before he went to the cross. So what I want you to do is take, hold your place in Matthew 21 and turn back to Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, 13-20, Jesus has taken, as I said, his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a place 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was the northernmost location of Jesus' ministry. It was the location of a temple built to the god Pan. Now, this temple stands near a large and deep cave, and you can still actually visit it today. The text says that Jesus was asking... Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? That's in Matthew 16, 13. Now, I take this as an ongoing discussion. Jesus was asking and discussing with His disciples the identity of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, 13-14, where Daniel describes one like a Son of Man who was coming, and He came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before Him. Now, This was a significant discussion because dominion and glory and a kingdom would be given to this Son of Man. Now I want you to notice, according to Matthew 16, 13, that Jesus specifically asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who are people discussing as the various possibilities for the one Daniel prophesied? And in verse 14, His disciples give several fickle opinions of the people. They said, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then, what I want you to notice in verse 15 is that Jesus actually turns the discussion. He says this, but who do you say that I am? Now, I want you to notice that this is a completely or a a different question for two different reasons. First, he's asking their personal opinion. Who do you say I am? Not the people. And more significantly, he asked them to profess his identity. Not the identity of the Son of Man. Do you notice that? It's at that point that Peter pipes up and says, gives what is an amazing and really and a very correct answer. Peter says, Simon Peter answered, verse 16, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. Now, verse 17, Jesus blesses him and tells him, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then Jesus declares to Peter, in verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, I can't overstate the significance of Jesus' declaration. Jesus is standing, now here's what I want you to picture. Jesus is standing in front of this temple to Pan. This, This godless temple, significantly, 
Some people believe that, that this was the seat of Satan himself. And, and he makes this declaration that he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's standing at the gate of Hades. You get the point. He's saying, I'm going to defeat this world. Now, he's going to build his church. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of discussion, there has been a lot of discussion as to what the rock is. Well, let me tell you what the rock is. Here's the rock. It's the truth that Jesus is in fact the Son of Man, that He's the one that Daniel saw approaching the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.13. He's the one who would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men of every tongue might serve Him. He's the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Do you not see the significance of Him standing in that location and saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I am. Church, this is the reason we are a church. The church is built on this profound truth. Let me show you something even more profound, profound that I believe connects us back to Jesus' entry in Jerusalem. So we're talking about, we're, we're going to connect back to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Notice in Matthew 16, 19 that Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom. Now I would argue that He's giving Peter this authority as the representative of the church. Then He says something peculiar in verse 20. He says, then he warned, it says, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. They should tell no one that he's the Messiah. Now I want you to look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Here's what I want you to see. He had just revealed the greatest truth that He could reveal. He is the Son of Man that he, he will build His church. Now He's telling them that He will suffer and die. Do you not see how amazing that is? Now, I want you to notice, Peter doesn't like this very much. And it says in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus famously rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, this is where it gets real for Peter and for the, for the rest of Jesus' disciples. And it's where it gets real for us too, by the way. And in Matthew 16, 24-25, Jesus declares to His disciples that if they want to follow Him, they would suffer for it. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, here's the deal. Peter had just heard from the mouth of the Lord that Jesus is, Jesus is the King. In fact, He's the King of kings. And when Peter heard this, 
I can promise you that he was ready to take Jerusalem and the world by force. That's what he wanted to do. But that was not Jesus' purpose. Here's what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 26. <clears throat> For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So you can go and take the world and all that it has, but what are you going to do if you forfeit your soul? You see, Jesus had, a, the Father had a plan of suffering that He would take upon Himself the sin of the world so that He may redeem the world. It would be according to the Father's plan, not our plan. Now, it's at this point that Luke tells us that the days for Him to be taken up, this is Luke 9.51, that the days for Him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled, and He set His face to go to Jerusalem. That point that He set His face to go to Jerusalem, it's that point He began His journey to the cross. He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die as the rejected Messiah and King. This was the beginning of the long pilgrimage with one purpose. His death. Therefore, Jesus' arrival at the Mount of Olives in Matthew 21.1 was the culmination of a journey that would end with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Turn back to Matthew 21. Let's look at the second of four critical features of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on His way to the cross. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was contemplated by the holy prophets. Let's pick up in verse 1. came to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, let me give you the state of the, the city of Jerusalem. And, and Jesus had arrived on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just east of the city. Now, the city itself was very full due to the upcoming Passover celebration. Now, we know from a census taken about 10 years later, there were 260,000 uh, sacrificial lambs slaughtered at the Passover. They allowed one lamb to be offered for up to ten people. Therefore, there could have been as many, or could have been over two million people in the city during that week. Now, what you have to understand, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's actually a very small area. The old city of Jerusalem is a very small area. So that's a, it's a lot of folks crammed into that relatively small uh, location. One can only imagine the sense of anticipation gripping the city. Now, so as we know... Jesus and his disciples had stopped in, uh, there on the Mount of Olives in Bethpage. And, and we know from John's Gospel that Jesus came to Bethany about six days before the Passover. Therefore, Jesus probably arrived on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. Now, he faced an incredible week filled with pain and anguish and, and would lead to his death. But on Saturday, we know that he rested with his dear friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, according to John chapter 12, Mary was there anointing his feet while the traitor Judas was hating every moment of it. In his unbelief and treachery, <coughs> he objected to 
Mary's worship and waited for a time to, 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 to betray the Lord. Now the next day would have been Sunday. Now we also know from John in John 12 verse 9 that a large crowd from the Jews learned that He was there and they came. Now they didn't come for Jesus only, they came to see Lazarus as well, whom Jesus had uh, very recently raised from the dead. Now according to John 12, 10 and 11, the chief priests planned to put uh, Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so, so we have this situation that, that the chief priests were unhappy with what was going on uh, with Jesus. And they wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to wipe him off the face of the earth. This all probably then happened. This, uh, all this happened probably on Sunday, the first day of the week. Therefore, therefore, it was probably Monday, the next day, when Jesus prepared to enter Jerusalem through the east gate of the city. Now, the triumphal entry then probably occurred on Monday and not on Palm Sunday as Christian tradition holds. The Monday entry better fits the chronology of the entire week. If we hold to a Sunday entry, there's a gap that is often referred to as Silent Wednesday. This problem of the Silent Wednesday is eliminated if Jesus entered in Jerusalem on Monday. So basically what we have is, is that Jesus came on Saturday, and Jesus came to be with, uh, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and in Bethany. And then they, on Sunday then, uh, they, the, the people they came to see Him, uh, Lazarus and Jesus. And on Monday then, He went into Jerusalem. Now, this also fits with the Mosaic requirement that sacrificial lambs for Passover were to be selected on the tenth, of the first, on the tenth day of the first month. These lambs were kept in the house until they were sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. That's according to Exodus 12.3 and Exodus 12.6. Now, I would argue then that Jesus entered Jerusalem, the home of the Jews, if you will, on Monday, which would have been the same time that the Passover lamb would have been taken into the home. They received Him in the, their home on the 10th, and therefore He was crucified on Friday the 14th. You see, the point is, is that He was the true Passover Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Look back at your text in verse 2, or verse 1. Then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, the story is pretty straightforward. Look down at your text in verse 2. Uh, the two disciples, He sent two of the disciples into the village opposite. And He gave them very detailed instructions. And, and clearly, what we see here is that Jesus controlled every minute uh, every, every minute, every minute detail of the situation. He told them that they would find a, a, a donkey tied there and a colt with her, and, un, and he told them to untie them and bring them to him. Look at verse 3. And if anyone asks what you're doing, says, tell them the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Of course, Jesus had everything worked out. He even knew that the, 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 the mother of the colt would be there that, that would ease the concern of this young colt. So he had, Jesus had them bring both of them. You see, the Lord was, our Lord Jesus was aware of the Father's plan right down to every little detail. Mark and Luke tells us that the owners did ask why they were taking the colt, and they were given permission just as the Lord had said. 
Now, these people could have been very well personally known by Jesus. They may have even been his, some of His followers. Whoever they were, they were more than willing to give this young cult to the Lord. Look down at verse 4. According to Matthew, all of this took place in order to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet, or what was spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled. Saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Now, Matthew is quoting Zechariah 9.9. Quoting that, it's a pretty, pretty straightforward quote. Now, what we have to understand is over 500 years prior to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Zechariah had prophesied that the people of Jerusalem would welcome the Messiah as their king. He even predicted that he would arrive in the city mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Now generally, when we think of a king arriving in a city, at least at that time frame, uh, you've seen it on, on television shows, we think of the king arriving with great pomp and circumstance. Great kings arrived on a, a regal stallion, maybe a regal white stallion, or in a beautiful chariot, adorned with gold, but Jesus, the King of Kings, arrived on the foal of a pack animal. In the words of John MacArthur, he was not at that time intended to come in earthly splendor or in reign in earthly power or to reign in earthly power. He did not come in wealth but in poverty. He did not come in grandeur but in meekness. He did not come to slay Israel's enemies but to save all mankind. The incarnation was the time of His humiliation, not the time of His glorification. Now think back on Matthew 16 and what I just told you earlier, uh, that, that they, He would suffer and He would die at the hands of the, of the chief priests and the elders. That was His purpose. His purpose was to come in humiliation. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem also fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy from Daniel. In Daniel 9.25, Daniel prophesied from the time of Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat even in the times of distress. That, that is a total of 69 weeks that Daniel said would happen. The literal translation of a week is seven years, and so 69 weeks is 483 years, so... The Messiah was prophesied to arrive in Jerusalem 483 years from Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the temple. He issued, Artaxerxes issued his decree around 457 B.C. And in any case, this fits the general chronology of Jesus' life and ministry. That He came exactly when He was prophesied to come. Back at your text in verse, verses 6 and 7. I wish we had time to get more into the prophecy, but we'll just go with it as it is. It says the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their garments on them, and He sat on the garments. You see, at that time, the disciples didn't fully understand everything that was happening, but, just, but be assured it was all happening just as the Lord had said. Look at the third of four critical features of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on His way to the cross. These last two will go quickly. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was celebrated with high praise. 
celebrate it with high praise. Look at verse 8. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Now I want to point out something here. Jesus was not caught up in the excitement of the people. As we saw in Matthew 16, Jesus completely understood the purpose of His arrival in Jerusalem. Jesus had come to Jerusalem to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of mankind. That was His purpose. Matthew 16.21, He said, He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and then be raised up on the third day. He didn't arrive in Jerusalem and begin to receive this adoration and praise of the people, thinking that He was about to take over the city. He was not a teacher who got caught up in the praise of the people and got crossways with the Jewish leaders. Our Lord didn't meet an untimely death at the hands of the Romans. Everything was planned right down to this spectacle. As Jesus arrived, the people began to throw their garments in the road. You see, they were submitting to His authority. They thought but they thought that He was coming to deliver them. They had a completely different understanding of what was going on. Some were throwing palm branches in the road, which symbolized salvation and joy. There was great joy in in what was happening, but it was for the wrong reasons. Uh, This scene, though, looks forward to the day that John spoke of in Revelation 7, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation in all tribes and tongues, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. It does look forward to that. But no doubt, no doubt, this crowd had heard of Jesus' exploits and healing diseases. They had heard of of Lazarus being raised from the dead. They They had been astonished by His teaching from the beginning. He had taught with authority, not as their not as their scribes, is what Matthew says in Matthew 7.29. He was not like their religious leaders who must have looked on in horror as the people received Jesus. His, his arrival in the city included uh, several thousand people. They were all cheering and happy that Jesus the King had arrived. They were totally caught up in the euphoria that their Messiah had finally arrived. They longed to be delivered and restored as a nation. And as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people thought He was there to deliver them. Look at verse 9. And the crowds were going ahead of Him, and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna, the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! They were calling out, Hosanna, which means save us now! They recognized Him as the Son of David, yet they didn't understand that He didn't come to deliver them from the hand of the Romans! He came to deliver them from their sins. They thought He came as a great conqueror. But He came as the conqueror of sin. Not the conqueror of Rome. He came as the Lamb of God to take away their sins. This was Passover week. Passover was the time that God gave them to celebrate their deliverance from the Egyptians. In their minds, surely this was the Messiah who had come to deliver them in the same way from the Romans. They were looking for a conquering Messiah who would bring great deliverance from their oppressors. How fitting would this be to happen on Passover? In their minds. That was not God's purpose. 
Jesus had been had come to be delivered over. He had come to save His people from their sin. Their shouts of joy were completely in line with Jesus' purpose. Completely in line with His purpose. They were fulfilling prophecy, yet they completely misunderstood what was actually taking place. He had not entered Jerusalem as a conquering hero. He had entered as a lowly and humble king. And by the end of the week, He would go to the cross and He would lie in the grave. And all those people would turn against Him. No one, including His disciples, would stand by Him. Let's look at the fourth and final critical feature of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem on His way to the cross. His arrival in Jerusalem was creating great confusion among the people. We've already alluded to this great confusion. Look down, look at your text in verse 10. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. I mean, they were stirred up. They were saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You see, the people were confused. They didn't understand. They didn't ultimately know or understand who Jesus was. They were right to praise Him. But they were wrong in their reasoning for the praise. You see, they wanted a king in their own image. They wanted a king they could like. You remember Saul and David? Remember Saul? They wanted a king like Saul. A physically strong king to deliver them. You see, they wouldn't bow down to a lowly king like Jesus, even though He is the Son of God. In just a few short days, just a few short days, they would have a chance to deliver Jesus from suffering on the cross. There is no doubt that many who cheered Him as He entered the city, Luke tells us in Luke 23, verses 20 to 25, in those verses, Luke tells us that the same people would yell, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate wanted to release Him. Not because Pilate's a great guy, mind you. But Pilate wanted to release Him. He says, I will punish Him and release Him. But they were insistent, with loud voices asking that He be crucified. And their voices were prevailing. Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate had no choice. Pilate had no choice but to... Grant their demand. And he released the man they were asking for to be, who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. You see, Jesus didn't fit into their own desires. Jesus wasn't who they wanted. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted a conqueror. But Jesus was lowly and humble. He came to die for the sins of His people. And they didn't understand His purpose. They didn't want to understand it. They wanted their sin. They wanted their sin. They wanted comfort. They envisioned life the way they wanted. How about you? Are you here because you believe Jesus will bring you great success in life? Do you want God to give you health and wealth? 
Do you want a God who will give you all the worldly things you want? When you think of being more than conquerors, are you thinking about conquering the world like Peter was? In your own way? You want, you want the Lord to make everything right for you? It's all cake and icing and ice cream and all the good stuff? You want Him to satisfy your selfish desires? You see, many of us proclaim Jesus when things are going well. When we feel blessed and favored. When God is showering down blessings. But as soon as things begin to shift, they turn their backs. They want out. Many curse and reject Him when they are confronted with their sins. Again, I ask, where do you stand? Many want to be delivered from life's troubles. We just talked about it, right? The shooting in Nashville. The standing for the truth. Do you recognize your need for true deliverance? Jesus came to conquer. He came to conquer. He came to conquer sin and death on the cross. Do you want to follow Him? Jesus Himself said, if anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Friends, Jesus promised that whoever loses, the, loses their life for His sake will find it. If you turn to Him in saving faith, if you give your entire life to Him, everything, He will save your eternal soul. You will find life, true life, life eternal. You see, this world offers comfort. Jesus offers salvation. He died for your sins if you only believe. In his words, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You can have that comfort. You can have all that the world offers. But what's it worth? What will it be a profit if you lose your soul? Well, this week, over the next few days, we're going to be remembering, we are remembering the events of the, the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. But here in the next few minutes, I want us to focus on the Lord's sin-atoning death on the cross as we observe a time of communion. Just a few days after His entry into Jerusalem, the Lord was with His disciples in the upper room. Love this. <clears throat> Love this reflection. John gives us a lot more information about what happened in that time frame, but just before he went to his death, just before he was arrested. Luke says in Luke 22.14, And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, Luke 9.51, we heard 
mentioned earlier, he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew exactly, Brandon Welch even said that he was leading his men to Jerusalem. He knew exactly what he was going to Jerusalem to do. When he entered that city, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly the purpose was to come and suffer and die for the sins of mankind. And it says he earnestly desired to eat that Passover before he suffered. It says this, For I say to you, I shall never eat it again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So amazing. He was there with his men, his disciples. And he was looking forward past the cross to a time when he would eat it again when it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We, uh, on a, every month, we observe communion. Time to reflect on the death of our Lord. First Corinthians 11, verse 27, or verse 26, that is, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until He comes. So we take this opportunity every month, the first Sunday of the month, to proclaim the Lord's death as we take communion. I want to give you a few reminders. Communion is a time of reflection time to proclaim the Lord's death, but it's a time of reflection to be able to reflect on what the Lord has done. Be able to reflect on the fact that He did go to the cross. That He bore the wrath of the Father so that we wouldn't have to. So that if we believe, if we believe in Him, that we might have eternal life. On the cross, He defeated sin. And then He was buried... And He was raised from the dead, defeating death, and now He sits at the right hand of the Father. And every time we eat, every time we take communion, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on those truths. It gives us also an opportunity to confess sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. Now this isn't the only time you should be confessing sin. You should keep a short account with the Lord. You should be constantly confessing, constantly confessing to the Lord so that He might cleanse you and, and make you righteous. I mean, He's already done that in Christ, but, but we get to an opportunity to confess. We want to constantly do this, but this is a special opportunity as we come together as a church to confess sin. I want you to take that opportunity. We have a song plan. Have the team come up and lead us as we take the time. Just want to also tell you that communion is for believers, believers in the Lord Jesus, those who have turned to Him, those who have placed their trust in His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His 
on, on high, those who believe that He went to the cross for their sins, those who believe that He died on the cross, that He was buried and He's resurrected and He sits at the right hand of the Father now. Communion is for those, for those folks. So take some time right now. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song together. But Take a moment here just to reflect on these truths. Reflect on the, what the Lord did. I mean, he, he said, I'm going to go suffer. Reflect on it. Think about it. Confess sin. Take that time.